This episode of Nerd Cognito is brought to you by CuraDebt. CuraDebt Debt Counseling offers you free debt settlement consultations. You're not dealing with the banks. You're not dealing with the credit cards. You're dealing with a company that is there to work for you and not the creditors. Hey, bad things happen. Bad things happen to all of us. If you have $10,000 or more in unsecured or credit card or personal loan debt, you owe it to yourself to give them a call. Pick up the phone, call 866-951-2699 for your free debt consultation. CuraDebt will work with you and provide you with a roadmap to rebuilding your credit. It's free. You have absolutely nothing to lose, but possibly the bad stuff that comes along with debt. 866-951-2699. Gather up your statements, give them a call, and take advantage of a free consultation. 866-951-2699. Cure a debt. 866-951-2699. Now, on with the show. Hey everybody, we're really, really back. Uh, my name is Ryan David. I'm joined by Bert. What's up, Bert? How's it going, Ryan? Oh, <laughs> after the fiasco that was last week's finished audio product, it can't possibly be going any worse. Uh, had a, I had a pretty good week. I, I cannot complain. Me too. It was a great week for, uh, you know, for me, I got to try out some, uh, try out a new board game, hang out with some friends. It was a pretty good weekend so far. I am jealous. I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. Uh, one of the games that everyone in our group passed on was Great Wall because whatever, we just, it just didn't come our way. And turns out that everything that we hear and see about it is really good, and you got a chance to play it this week. So I am green with envy, my friend. I did, and um, I'll tell you what. It's very strategy-heavy, so it's it's uh, done in a heavy Euro style, but it is really great. Yeah, everything I've read, seen, and heard, I, I cannot think of one negative that has come its way. So maybe maybe a copy is in the future for us in some capacity, but this week, we're taking a look at a game that we threw on the table for our gaming group, and we're going to give a detailed breakdown of the board game Windward. You've got to be kidding me. My mother is calling. Oh, 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 oh. I am going to, uh, I'm going to take advantage of this moment. Okay. Let me pull up the Bluetooth audio. Oh, no. On... Oh, yes. For everyone that has ever wondered, Ryan, it's real. It's real. Hi. Ryan? Uh, We're recording a podcast right now. Hi. You're on the air. (laughs) I'm sorry. I just wanted to know if we could repeat the remote. Is it compatible with the dining room TV? And can we get it in 24 hours? Let me log on here and see do some shopping because this one really works well i don't know if it's compatible with the dining room tv i did ask if you wanted a second one when we were ordering them yes you did i didn't think we needed it but 
now that I see how slick it works, I think it would be so much simpler than all those small little buttons. It would not be delivered until Tuesday, so you'll be back in Florida. Nope, that's not good. Okay, we'll wait till next time. A different colored one, because we ordered the black one. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Maybe the white one will get there in time, you know. The white one also will arrive on Tuesday. So there is no white privilege. And then, okay. <laughs> All right. And and by the time it arrives, it won't. I, I can't guarantee that it will arrive early, not no, in the day. Can't. I'm leaving here at 4 p.m. Okay. Sorry for the, dis- the disruption. Bye. Oh, the Bluetooth connection is such a wonderful thing, isn't it? <laughs> oh, I'm listening to your mom on the podcast now, so. Ryan, need you to shop for me. I no- noticed she didn't care that I said we were in the middle of doing something. Right, you even told her, you're on the air, and she's like, oh, uh, I'm sorry, but I need to think. Mm-hmm. Can't shake it for 40-plus years, and it's still the same. Your mom is always going to be your mom. You know, my mom is still my mom. You know, I'm I'm a little older than you, and my mom is still my mom, still calls me for favors. But uh, You keep harping on You're only three years older than me. <laughs> I just want to put that into perspective. We would have attended high school... At the same time, if we were in the same high school. You have a point. You have a point. Anyway, before we were so rudely interrupted, at least Dave didn't get on. What are you doing? I'll bet you you're doing some stupid shit. Um, I don't understand. Why you always got to do stupid shit? Um, we were talking about Windward the board game. And how we, we were, were. going to go into detail because we finally got an opportunity to play it and dig deep into Windward. Um, for those of you that don't know, you are the captain flying your ship on the skies of the gaseous planet Celis. You want to gain the most notoriety by sailing the skies, hunting crusters, which are space whales, right? Everybody likes a space whale, and fighting opponents. Whichever player has the most notoriety points at the end of the game is the winner. Yada, yada, yada. So we played some Windward. And Bert, you were the first one to verbalize, I think, what we were all thinking in that this was originally a board game that was designed to be a whaling board game. Right. I mean, it, it was obviously a whaling simulator. It literally simulates whale hunting from, like, the turn of the century. You're dropping longboats... Those longboats are hunting whales. You're, they're towing those whales back to your ship, and then you're you're um, you're basically harvesting those whales for supplies. So, but instead of whale oil, because right? you know people would lose their mind and they would be canceled into oblivion because oh, whale hunting is bad. We trade made the transition to put it into. Outer space. So you're <laughs> flying around a planet that doesn't have whales. It has crusters, which the miniatures look just like fucking whales. 
little insectile, but yes, they're basically flying whales. Yeah. But no, and I think what was funny was even though the game is themed outer space, at the table, we were still using terms like at sea. <laughs> right. Instead of at sky, we would say at sea. And what's funny is all of the the crew that you would hire, they didn't give them new names. They were still Marines and Coxswain. What is it called? Uh, the Coxswain, yes. Coxswain, yes. But they literally were the same terms that you would have used for that job on a whaling ship from, you know, the 1800s. Now, also, not only was our vernacular skewed to the fact that this should be on the ocean whaling, I think I thematically would have enjoyed the game a little bit more if they would have just been out with it and said, hey, you're on the ocean whaling instead of these obstacles that are space rocks, you know, they're fucking continents. <laughs> right, right. I mean, when you're when you're playing the game, like the obstacles that are there make a lot more sense if you're in the sea instead of in the sky. Well, no one's going to know what the hell we're talking about because we jumped the gun. True. And <clears throat> we're talking about some things that we haven't discussed with our friends that are listening today. So, in Windward, you do command a ship. You are captain of your ship. You are Ahab. And your ship has a couple of longboats that your ship can deploy to go and hunt some whales. And you're moving around a circular hex map that represents the world. Now, there are, what I was talking about before, there are some squares, or hexes, I should say, on the map that have giant chunks of floating debris that are impassable. And that's where I was going. Those impassable pieces of debris really were islands and continents and and things like that, if you were to translate it to whaling. Right, you're, you're looking at things like a coral reef or something that your ship can't easily pass. Absolutely. Now, your ship is armed and you do have to fight whales and there are you know big whales and small whales on the board and the big whales are worth more points but they are significantly nastier now Bert I remember first turn right out of the gate you got clobbered by a big red whale I did the, uh, the, I got out of port I got into the sky I immediately ran into that giant red whale, and it just decimated me. I went right back to port. You did. And the reason I remember this is because I rolled the dice for that giant red whale. And first turn, we wanted to make sure that we were doing everything correctly, and we looked up to see what happens when a, when a ship needed to go back to port. Now, the interesting thing is amongst the whalers, there was a Greenpeace vessel. And Bert, you got to play. <laughs> you got to play the conservationist, I, I, right? Was that the Instead official of, title in the game? The conservationist, naturalist, the, the naturalist. naturalist, the naturalist faction. It's called. And yes, my ship was the one that did not kill whales. When I hunted whales, I would take them into my ship, tag them, drop them back on the map, and then if that whale survived, I would get points, victory points, notoriety points from that whale every turn. Of course, every time I dropped one of the tag on it, you guys rushed to kill it, so I would stop earning points. 
Right, and I think that that's important because for us, everyone else that was playing the Whale Hunters, we had one shot at earning points. You know, you killed a whale, you turned in a tooth, which is what the whale converted to, and you earned victory points. Whereas the naturalist, as long as that tagged whale was on the board, it was cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. You would rack up points every single time you ended your turn. So it motivated us to target those specific whales. I thought that that was really, really good game design. The other thing that I really liked with the game design that worked against me for at least the first half of the game was the wind mechanic. What did you think about the wind? Tell everybody about the wind mechanic and, and tell me what you thought about it. Okay, so every round the wind direction would change. If your ship is moving in the direction that the wind is indicated that it's blowing, you don't have to count ship speed or movement. You can move as many squares in, or as many hexes in that direction as you want or as you can. In a straight line. In a straight line. Right, you're riding counts, the wind, so to speak. And it counts as no movement. You, only when you change direction did you have to use any part of your ship's movement speed, which started at four and there were things you could do to adjust it. And also, you could not move directly against the wind in any capacity, which right. made for some tight spots. And I got into a position where I happened to be the player at the table that went last, so I had less options on the board that I could even feasibly reach for the first couple of turns. And that wind just really fucked up my day. It did. And, uh, and I thought the wind mechanic was, again, another mechanic that was really good for gameplay, but made more sense thematically if we were ships at sea. <laughs> well, absolutely. Instead of being sky ships, being sh sea ships, being ships at sea made a, lot right, of, you... made a lot of difference. But that goddamn wind turned me from an honest whaler into a fucking pirate in three turns. Yeah, you just started attacking everybody's ships, mainly mine. Well, Every time I had a whale in the hold, you came for me. I made the tactical decision that it was easier to fight a ship that had already spent all of its resources to attack and defeat a whale, but didn't necessarily have enough actions left to process the whale. i got to start calling them cresters. Whatever, the whale didn't have enough resources to process the whale and was just holding on to them, well, <laughs> that, that was sitting pretty for me. And I, I made up in two turns a 10-point deficit by switching my tactic over to being a little bit of a pirate. Right. You went from Ahab to Blackbeard pretty quickly. I, I did. And it fortunately worked, but also... I think that had I not been the last player, player order is really important when it comes to strategy in Windward. If I were a player in a second or third position instead of last, I don't think that the decision to turn to the dark side would have come so easily for me. I quite literally found myself in the first two, maybe three rounds with no options. So I had to create some options. 
Now, Windward also has a co-op mode. We did not dig down into the co-op mode. We played the straight-up competitive cut-your-neighbor's-throat mode. You got a little right. pissed and started coming back after me. Made for a fun little whaling experience. Right, well, you would take the whale from my hold, you would process it, therefore killing the whale, and getting the tooth. I didn't want you to get that tooth back to port and get the points for it. So if I attack your ship, take the tooth out of your hold, I can't get any points for it, but I can throw it away so you can't earn points for the whale you stole from me. No, completely understood. Absolutely. Um, From my perspective, I was lucky if I was getting gas, which is the equivalent of whale oil. It's the currency in the game. And the tooth was like gratis, so I had the option of exploring to get gas or trying to pirate your whale. And once or twice, I was able to successfully make off with a tooth. Interesting game. I it was. I, I ended up enjoying it more than I thought I was going to. Yeah, normally, games like that where you're directly competitive, they're kind of hit or miss with me. This one I thought was really good because not only did you have to... There was a strong strategy element around the wind direction and where the whales were and where the other ships were. But um, when it came down to it, you know, you, you had a chance to be, you know, petty, vindictive, vengeful, like, and sometimes that can be fun in a game. Right. I, I went into this with, as I do with all games with an open mind, but with some reservations because it, it wasn't a, darling of the board game community when it hit Kickstarter, by any means. And it did get a retail release that went without so much fanfare. So I was cautiously optimistic, and I found that it was deeper than it gets credit for, right? When I think about it in complexity, just reading the book and looking at the board and analyzing the pieces on paper... It seems very basic, but when you get into the game and you have to factor things in, like the wind and like the unpredictable nature of the other players, I think that it is much more complex than people tend to give it credence. Does that make sense? It does. I I agree with you 100%. Now, we read through the co-op rules. What did you think... Uh, and, and, you know, it, it, is it just a little on the nose because of it's a fantasy skin over a whaling theme that the co-op mode is hunting the great white crester? It's the Moby Dick of the skies? I don't know. When we were reading through the co-op rules, I thought that they were more of an afterthought. I thought that this was an example of a game publisher, and you see this a lot, throwing co-op rules or throwing solo rules in, just because they want to have it there. I think the game competitively is how it was designed and probably should be played. So would you call this another sleeper hit like Otis was? We heard nothing about Otis, and then as soon as we started playing it, we had a great time with it. Like It it totally flew under our radar, no fanfare, no great reviews, no... And then we started playing it, and it was a lot of fun. I don't know if I would go so far as to say it's a sleeper hit. I think that it is a success with our group in the same vein that Otis was. I mean, the components are amazing. We didn't talk about that yet, but the sculpts for the whales and the ships, 
everything is unique. Um, right down to the player ships. All four player ships are unique. Um, different just, designs, different colors, different yeah, different setups. Like it, the miniatures in this were really well done. I'm wondering if it intentionally may have been passed on because of some of the wailing overtones. I mean, we do know that exists in the gaming hobby, right? And it could be a possibility that the vocal pussbags made a decision to snub it, maybe? I don't know. That's just speculation. I think it's a good game. And I think that the price point is right if you get it on sale. I don't think I would pay 80 bucks for it, which is the retail price. But I think if you could pick it up anywhere between 30 and 50 bucks, and you have a table that isn't going to get their feelings hurt with some direct conflict, this could be a good game. Agreed. And like most games that have, I don't want to say a historical element, because they took a historical element and painted over it with a fantasy brush. But a lot of games that are set, you know, in certain periods or with certain, what, how do I want to say it? In certain periods of history or with certain things that happen during history, they are what they are. Some of them are going to be brutal and unpleasant, but that doesn't mean that you can't enjoy the game for what it is. It's not like, we, Windward, 50% of all proceeds go to hunt whales. You know, that's not... <laughs> Oh, for an evil bastard like me, I, that's a check in the wind column. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so uh, buy it, play it at your buddy's house, or pass. If you had to give a final judgment, I would say I would buy a copy if it were me. Yeah, I think I am in the buy it category too, especially if you consider that uh, it can be had. For less than retail, because it wasn't a critical success, but it is a very successful board game. Hey, I just looked it up on the Zon, and it can be had right now for less than thirty bucks. So oh, I'll put that. A, yeah, I will uh, put a link in the show notes to anyone that wants to do it. Pick it up through our link. Give us a few pennies, commission, and you'll pick up an excellent game. Windward, the board game. Definitely something that uh, caught us by surprise and turned out to be a very welcome surprise. You know what? Nerd Cognito filling up your game shelf with cheap hits. Hey, Just we, another service we provide. This we, is twice now, folks. I know. We're all about the bargain games lately. Hey, I'm all for saving money. And uh, far be it from us to consider ourselves budget gamers. I think we, we spend more than our fair share on games. But. Um, I will uh, I will appreciate a budget game when it's a success and it comes out. I, I like happy surprises. Yeah, saving on games all the way around is definitely a good thing. And, hey, there's one place that you can go that will definitely save you on your PC gaming needs. Bert, you know about Fanatical? I do. Yeah, Fanatical is an awesome, awesome, awesome games marketplace where... Hey, they cut out the middleman. You're going to get legitimate Steam keys or Origin keys or whatever keys for a whole lot less than you would pay through the main.
main marketplace. Go to nerdcognito.com, scroll down the page, and find the link to Fanatical. Hey, they're running a big sale right now, so you can pick up games even cheaper than their already low prices, which are lower than MSRP and many, many, many times lower than you can find anywhere else. We've used Fanatical personally, even before they were a sponsor. They were one of my go-tos. If I was going to buy a video game, I checked there first. So we encourage you to check there as well. Again, go to nerdcognito.com, scroll down the page, click on the Fanatical link, and happy, happy gaming. Uh, what is not happy gaming is what I've got on deck next, Bert. All right, hit me. What's terrible in gaming this week? It's a list. Oh, we love those. Oh, we do. And it's a list that's written by one of my favorite types of people in the gaming hobby. I like to call them the whiny... (laughs) Are you ready to hear about some monsters in Dungeons and Dragons that have outstayed their welcome in the game, Bert? Outstayed their welcome. Yes, I, I didn't know that if you knew this, but there are certain monsters in Dungeons and Dragons that for social, political, or other reasons don't need to be there. And since we're revising everything, anybody that has a platform can scream as loud as they want and hope that Wizards is hearing them. I mean... This is how we end up with things like the removal of alignment from Dungeons & Dragons. Hmm. But there are some monsters that, wouldn't you know it, they just don't have a place in the game anymore. No, I mean, there there have always been monsters that kind of become people's sort of go-to. You know, anytime that you don't know what to do or you're not sure, everybody's got a monster that they throw in as like a filler or a throwaway. But I can't think of anything that should be eliminated from the game. Well, you're wrong. You're wrong because, you know, someone's sensibilities have been upset. And first up on the list, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call this like a tie. You know, it's not a ordered list by any means. Okay. But uh, goblins and kobolds. Goblins and kobolds. Okay, both classic monsters. Both, both have been around very, for decades. Right. You know, they're they're very similar. You know, they're small creatures. They they mob low level players. Right. They've got uh you know, they're they've been they're sort of primitive known to be primitive, tribal, you know, they're not uh not known for organization or tactics. Well, in case you didn't know, goblins and kobolds are far too prevalent in early-level Dungeons & Dragons games to the point where it's just boring. It's boring, Bert, that there's just all of these goblins and kobolds, and this includes hobgoblins and bugbears. A quote taken as a whole, goblinoids unquote, can easily just go away. All of the goblinoids, because they're trite and overused. It's 
sounds like someone has a terrible dungeon master. Right. I mean, you could easily give any one of the goblinoid bases, you know, a rich tribal history. It's all going to be based on your storyteller. Like, are they just throwing goblins at you just to throw goblins at you? Well, then that's on your storyteller. That's not on goblins. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what I was going to do with goblins. And I might still do it. So if I do it, you have to pretend like you have no idea that this okay. is going to happen. Uh, I was going to do goblins in a trench coat as the first sort of mini milestone big bad evil guy. It was this ominous, overarching, sort of ethereal mobster vibe. And when you got to the battle, the trench coat came off and it was three goblins on each other's shoulders the whole fucking time. (laughs) I didn't have any names. I didn't have anything planned. I didn't stat it out. But I knew that that's what I wanted (laughs) the first micro big bad evil guy of the campaign to be. Um, So so these three organized goblins that are, okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah, that that's where I was going. So fuck you already. <laughs> Getting rid of my goblins. Take a stab. Plus, what do you what do you think that this dick bag has next on his list? Uh Drow. Drow are not on the list. Drow mm. are okay. Well, you know, we don't wanna I'm putting myself you know, people say I don't have empathy. I don't have the ability to put myself in someone else's shoes. I'm gonna put myself in the author of this list's shoes. I can't write about drow. Someone might perceive that that correlates to a real world race. But they sure can write about orcs. Oh, of course. Okay. Quote, orcs are always generic. Unquote. Uh, no. I've played in plenty of, uh, Campaigns where orcs were anything but generic. Oh, no, 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 Bert. They are the, quote, go-to shorthand for looming raiders. They fill a role of basic humanoid enemies that threaten the party and get bland because of their blatant overuse. Hmm. This is going to be a hell of a list, Bert. Sure is. I mean, I played in a Border Wars campaign where... You know, we were up against orc tacticians and, uh, you know, it was a whole, like, I, w- I don't want to say battlefield simulator, but I played in a whole D&D campaign where we were skirmishing on the border of a country and we were fighting orcs. It, it was a border war between us and organized, militarized, and tactically sound orcish fighters. I don't know why you would want to get rid of something that you could easily make better you know what i mean oh i i don't know maybe because zombies and skeletons aren't scary anymore next on the list Hmm. (laughs) the most basic low-level undead come in just two flavors brutish zombies and tactical skeletons they're extremely common in fantasy fiction and DD is no exception once the players see skeletons for the fifth, tenth, or hundredth time, they cease to be frightening. I, I, I really think this guy is just playing with a terrible DM. I, I should stop making fun of... Did I just say that? 
I, said, I should stop making fun of him? No, I'm not going to stop making fun of him. He's got to be playing with a terrible, terrible, terrible DM. He should come to and our table. Agreed. Uh, once characters have the ability, like, once characters have the ability to make their own zombies and skeletons, you can kind of view the, you can kind of view them for what they are. Zombies and skeletons are tools. They're not villains in and of themselves. They're tools of a greater evil or of a greater power. I would say tools of a greater power because I ran a campaign once where there was a tavern and the tavern was attacked by some sort of raiding evil person that the party had to overcome. And the solution when the tavern owner, the dear beloved tavern owner, you know, known by everyone in the village, it was like everybody's grandfather just loved him to pieces, lost his entire family. The necromancer helped him out and raised some zombie barmaids for him and allowed him to continue to operate. So, um, I mean, next this guy will be saying that swords are too cliche for D&D and we should get rid of swords. Well, close, but bandits are everywhere. Very common low-level enemy is a group of highway robbers, bandits, or raiders. Hmm. Well, let's see. You're looking at... I mean, you're looking at a fantasy version of our world during a time period of low technology. Highwaymen, bandits, and cutthroats were pretty common on any trade route or any regularly traveled road. I was going to say, it was a legitimate occupation. (laughs) Yeah, highwaymen was a legitimate occupation. Like, you robbed people to make a living. Well, it's an overused trope, Bert. Hmm. Disagree, but okay. I I know. You know, it segues right into those damn cultists. Cultists are everywhere. Dark rituals and evil theology start to get a little bit stale after a while. I mean, that's one of the things that I thought was great about D&D is they had both, you know, they had theology in all sorts of flavors from, you know, uh, the the holiest good to the deepest evil and some that were just kind of neutral indifference, you know, just because somebody follows a particular deity or outsider or demon or anything like that doesn't necessarily make them a cultist. If you do have a legitimate cult, then you're basically fighting an organized religion, which is, uh, you know, something that I would think somebody, the person who made this list might appreciate. Well, the person that made the list cited all of those things as negatives. I'll, I'll, I'll quote, I wasn't going to go into the cultists because, you know, we're talking brigands and cultists. They hate them. I mean, why are you playing D&D? Um, quote, whether they worship ancient lost gods, diabolical fiends, or unknown evils from beyond the stars, cultists are an easy, easy enemy to slot into just about any setting at any level. This guy, like, hates D&D. <laughs> and he's writing a and d column. <laughs> well, I mean, there... There are stories that have been used a lot, and highwaymen and cultists are, you know, stories that do get used quite often. But, again, 
you know, the it doesn't. What is this guy leaving for adventure ideas? Absolutely nothing, because I'm going to the top of the list, which are some dungeons and big bad evil guy things that need to go. Did you know that oozes infest every single dungeon in Dungeons and Dragons? Hmm, no, I, I, I can honestly say I've only run into oozes a handful of times. Most dungeons I've gone to have been infested with traps. Let me tell you that if and when I put an ooze in a dungeon, it really means something. Because oozes are no joke if they are strategically placed by the dungeon master. No. Gelatinous cube in a pit trap. That's my favorite, favorite trap of all time. 30-foot pit trap, gelatinous cube at the bottom, bye-bye. But no, oozes, you know, oh, they can easily be outmaneuvered, and, well, that's the point. When, uh, I, I am absolutely convinced that this, this cock block, I don't like the word cock block, uh, cock wobble, that's better. I'm absolutely convinced that this cockwobble just either hates Dungeons and Dragons in general or has a terrible dungeon master. Because the last thing to get rid of is the lich. Wait, uh, he wants to get rid of the lich. He wants to get rid of the lich. These nigh-immortal spellcasters are incredibly iconic. They tend to be necromancers, providing a whole host of weaker, boring undead to oppose the party. And they attain immortality by trapping pieces of their souls in artifacts. That being said, all of these traits are incredibly well known. If the players learn they're hunting a lich, they'll immediately know what must be done to kill it. Uh, if you're, first of all, if you know you're hunting a lich, and you are anywhere south of level 15 you know you've got a long way to go before you even think about killing that lich. Absolutely. And the other thing is, just because you know how a lich can be killed doesn't mean that you're going to be able to kill him. Right. I had a lich that had a piece of the phylactery scattered amongst realms. You're not killing that lich. (laughs) Again, (laughs) who hurt this guy? Who hurt this man? I mean, yes, a a lot of things that he mentioned are, you know, established storylines that have been done before. But just because something's been done before doesn't mean that you can't do it differently or make it your own. The the fact that uh, an idea has been used by somebody else doesn't automatically make it invalid or that you should get rid of it. Well... I will reserve judgment on the author because I've beat him up enough. All I can say is that this is very stereotypical of a trend that wants to undo and redo our beloved hobby. For good or for bad, they're here, they're playing, and we just have to sort of steer them on the right path. And like I said, dude, if you're listening, you wrote that miserable list for that miserable website, by the way, which I'm not even going to plug because it is a pretty clickbaity website. Come come play at our table. Next time you're in the tri-state area, hit me up, nerdcognitopodcast at gmail.com, and I'll show you how the big boys roll. You know what else is rolling out, Bert? 
What's that? The news. Interesting week for news this week. Some things that we foreshadowed in weeks past, which is always a good thing. Interesting. And uh, I, I don't know. I was I was pretty impressed with everything that was on deck for the news this week. Well, hit me with it. What do we got for news? Well, a couple of weeks ago, I said that there is a game in a franchise that I know you love, that I also know that you passed on, that you have to play. Do you remember what that game was? Fallout 76. It was Fallout 76. Well, this week, topping off the news, Bethesda has announced that they, contrary to rumors that they were going to start to wind down Fallout 76. To counteract those rumors, they publicly announced that they are working on a, quote, five-year roadmap for Fallout 76. And Fallout 76 will be supported and updated for quite some time. Right now, Fallout 76 is on Season 8 of content, which I haven't played the last two seasons. I'm going to have to jump back in here. But uh, UFOs filled with alien invaders have just arrived in West Virginia in, Ooh, I, in Season 8. So, is it a la, are they the invaders a la, like, um... Yes, the, the ones that you've expansion? seen before. Yes, 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 right. yes. Also... What was it, Mothership Zeta? Was <laughs> yes. Fallout 3? Same, same, same type of aliens. Um, awesome. Fallout 76 has announced that their new 2022 roadmap, which promises arena fights against robots in the summer and expeditions to revisit the pit this fall, will also add a new region boss along with aliens and almost double the content of last year's roadmap. Bethesda has also announced that they plan to continue to support the game for a whopping five years. Quote, we have long-term plans, and things get a little fuzzier the further we go out because we adjust and adapt as things show up and we see what players want and what they're doing. But a lot of time right now is spent on planning that three- and five-year roadmap. Unquote. Fallout 76 is going nowhere. Which well, is awesome. great. Hey, uh, good for them. Maybe that Microsoft cash infusion wasn't as negative as we thought it was going to be. Right. I mean, you're eight seasons in, you're planning another five years of content for so, to support your players. That's amazing. I mean, especially for, you know, something that had a rocky start, you, you don't expect that kind of longevity out of it. So this is just great news. No, it is absolutely great news. And in fact, you know, I played from the beginning and was sorely disappointed, and it didn't come into its own until Season 3. Now we're in Season 8, it's going strong, and uh, it's hard to argue with that. A one-time purchase, no monthly fee, and they're still planning five years out from today. So good, good stuff. Yeah, now that you're, I mean, from the news that you uh, have been, you recommended it to me, you've the, with the news articles and things we've been seeing, I'm really thinking about pulling the trigger and getting into it. You know, I don't use my account, and I know <laughs> this is kind of gray, but if you want to test drive on my account, 
uh, you can feel free, my friend, and we could talk off the air and possibly set something up like that. Um, I'm not sure if you're gaming PC, because I know that you are definitely a console guy. If right. your gaming PC would be up to speed, or if you would want to get it on console, but I'd be happy to roll around West Virginia with you. Now, can console players and PC players interact with each other? No, no. Fallout 76 does not support crossplay right now, and okay. although it's been talked about on the roadmap, it is currently not cross-platform between Xbox, PS5, and PC. So, if you want to roll around wild, wonderful West Virginia with me, you got to play it on the PC. Yeah, I, might, I might be looking at a new <laughs> PC sooner or later, but... Um... I can get in for I can get in on PlayStation for like dirt cheap. Yeah, it, it's it's not been expensive. I know uh, we talked about it being on sale. Let me look at our friends at Fanatical. Fallout seventy six right now on Fanatical is fifty five percent off as of nice. this recording. So twenty six bucks. Oh, you can't beat that. Well, you can. I told you guys to pick it up a couple of years ago when everyone was hating on it. It was 10 bucks. Oh, wow. But right now, I don't think you're going to see it too much cheaper than that. You might get it down to 20 bucks, but then we're talking about a latte. So, <laughs> but hey, you know, some people need to save to enjoy their lattes. Speaking of first person shooters, something that was on my radar just because I like the franchise and sadly has been delayed now a little bit further is Far Cry Beyond, the board game. Oh, really? I, I'm familiar with the Far Cry franchise, but I ha don't know very much about the board game. Yeah, Fun Forge, you know, the French publisher that has done a, a lot of interesting IPs, has announced that the Far Cry board game will not debut as a Kickstarter this month, as expected, but instead they've set a new Kickstarter launch date of April 11th. Hmm, I wonder why they pushed back their Kickstarter launch. It is also interesting that it was just pushed back a month. According to FunForge, quote, a set of improvements and additions currently being implement are currently being implemented in the Kickstarter. Unquote. There's some of that uh, bad translation, because, you know, they <laughs> are French. <laughs> Both the quality and the quantity of what we will offer during the Kickstarter will be affected. It's not clear whether they're talking about referring to gameplay through stretch goals or something like that, or backer rewards. But it was okay. announced back in September that... Uh, Far Cry Beyond is set in the Far Cry universe, but not specifically based on any particular game in the series. It's a co-op set in 1984 in the middle of the Cold War, where players take on the role of stunt doubles on a mission to save America. <laughs> oh, no, not... It's one of those Red Menace board games? <laughs> According to FunForge, it also features, and this is what hooked me, an in-depth crafting system, adaptable enemies that level up, and secret unlockables, including fluffy companions. In a board game. In a board game. That's 
that's pretty challenging. I'd be interested to see how those mechanics work. Well, FunForge has pulled it off with some top-shelf board games. You know, Brass. Brass Birmingham is mm. them. Uh, Agricola is them. Nemesis is them. Oh, they were the ones who did Nemesis. I didn't realize. Uh, now we've got Far Cry Beyond, which, if I trip over a bag full of money, will be my next Kickstarter pledge. And my first Kickstarter pledge in almost three years. So, I've been a good monkey in staying off of Kickstarter, but I might probably, yes, will, back Far Cry Beyond. It just sounds really cool. This one's going to knock you off the wagon, huh? Oh. I'm so torn. I really am because they do have a good history of retail releasing as well. So it's really going to depend on what's going to be exclusive to the Kickstarter. But we've got to wait a month to see. So we will wait a month to see. So for right now, it's just something to keep an eye on, but those stretch goals might pull you back in. Huh? Yeah, it is my top Kickstarter focus right now, if I had to pick one. Back to the world that we talked about on our last full episode of Nerd Cognito. Nintendo! Okay. Nintendo, what's in Nintendo news? Super Nintendo World is coming to the United States next year in a first-of-its-kind theme park. You know, they have Super Nintendo World in Japan, of course. Right, I've actually seen, like, some YouTube videos and stuff like that of people going into, like, Super Mario events and things like that in Japan. So that's uh, kind of neat. But well, the ink is know. dry on the licensing agreement. The Super Nintendo World is coming to... Universal Studios Hollywood in 2023. The new okay, so they're partnering with Universal Studios. Yes, which means we might see one on our coast in Florida probably the year after, right? Disney, yeah. But um, Super Nintendo World will open a newly expanded area of the park. It includes rides and interactive areas and it promises the complete immersive jump into the world of Mario. It was originally conceived in a partnership with Nintendo and Universal Japan, where, as you and I talked about just moments ago, we've, we've seen how the world just completely translated into Mario World, right? Right. I mean, it, it was... Uh, the, some of the ones I've seen that YouTubers and stuff did about their... Uh their events there, they looked really interesting. It was, you know, a little bit of nostalgia and a little bit of uh, sort of like theme park fun and a little bit of, uh, it kind of combined some of those things. Like if we went to Disney World, you know, we, we'd be looking at Marvel and we'd be looking at Star Wars and we'd be looking at other properties. But, you know, this was kind of like, it's sort of seeing your childhood in the real world. <laughs> right. Not- I, I'm, I'm just looking at one of the menus for one of the establishments, which is a super mushroom pizza bowl, a piranha plant caprice salad, and a question block tiramisu. <laughs> uh, I'll have a slice of that question block, please. <laughs> so, welcome to the States, Mario and Company. 
Now, do you think this opens the door for more of those? Because in Japan, those like pop up and like theme cafes and theme events centered around video games and anime. Like I've seen Kirby events. I've seen all kinds of things. Do you think this is sort of a one-off or do you think this opens the door for us to see more of those sort of short-term special events based around other nostalgic properties? I don't see the short-term thing coming. You know, I'm seeing this coming because it's Mario, it's established, and it is going to be a permanent part of the theme park. Okay. Um, I just don't see right now the profitability for those short-term things to pop up in the States like they do in Japan. Because let's face it, anyone in Japan can hop on a train and be anywhere else in three or four hours. We don't have that luxury. True. So those pop-up things don't really work regionally. Plus, you know, we're still wearing masks on airplanes. People are still reluctant to travel. Uh, That's starting to break down. But uh, we're also facing some... with, And again, we say it all the time, we're not getting political, but we're getting real. We're facing some economic times that are going to really put the crunch on the family budget. So, Absolutely. Um, I don't know that that is something that'll, that'll just pop up. It'll definitely be something to keep an eye on, but I think we'll just have to be happy with Universal Studios Hollywood. Hey, uh, I'm not knocking it. I mean, a permanent Nintendo exhibit at Universal Studios, that just kind of... uh, I wish it wasn't in L.A., man. True, true. I wish it was on our coast, you know. I mean, I just wish it were anywhere but L.A. Put it in fucking Vegas if you want it on the left coast. (laughs) Just not L.A. (laughs) I've never been to L.A. I got invited to go once, and I just didn't. Because you were wise. (laughs) Because you are wise. Last item of news this week are some big rumors for some old head Dungeons & Dragons players like us. Because it looks like a return to the world of Kryn is coming up this year. No way. Rumors that the Dragonlance setting will be returning to 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons were all but confirmed this week when Wizards of the Coast released a new packet of playtest materials titled Unearthed Arcana Heroes of Kryn. The bundle includes a new race, a new subclass, multiple backgrounds, and feats. The Heroes of Kryn bundle is up right now and free to download, and it includes the rules for creating a... Kender. I was just going to ask, is it a Kender? Uh, everybody says Kenders are halflings, but we all know they're not. <laughs> no, they're dickhole uh, halflings. <laughs> kind of, kind of, yeah. Um, these rules are, quote, in draft form and usable in your campaign, but not refined by final game development. What that What's means the- is you're going to have a Dragonlance supplement or two coming out in 2022. I'm kind of excited about that. Some of the classes for Dragonlance were great. Like the knights and things like that were really interesting to play as a as a player character. Did you do much Dragonlance playing? I did a fair amount of Dragonlance play at the end of the Dragonlance run. 
when you remember the third edition Dragonlance releases. Yes, I do. I, my roommate at the time, this was like straight post-college, we shared ramen noodles because we were that poor, saved <laughs> for two months to be able to buy the, the Dragonlance books. And, of course, he wanted to run it and 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 run it. And we ran it. But that is really cool. Um, first we hear hints at a return to Spelljammer. And that one pulls my heartstrings. That was where I cut my DM teeth. Was in, in the Spelljammer world. And now Dragonlance. So do you think there's any chance we're going to get Dark Sun back? Because that's where I cut my teeth. No, no, no. We talked uh... about it in the news last week. They're, they gave They effectively gave away the IP to that fan group. That means they're, it's not even in their thoughts. Yeah, that makes me a little sad, but okay. I'll, I'll go back to Dragonlance. I'll go back to Kryn. It's still better than Greyhawk. <laughs> living Greyhawk. Remember when, when you weren't allowed to just say Greyhawk? It was living Greyhawk. Right. Everything was living Greyhawk. Oh, that's the news this week, Bert. Still some really cool stuff there. I mean, you got me looking at Fallout 76 pretty hard again, so that's uh, that's always a good thing. I love picking up a new game. Well, it's just it's just a matter of the time investment because you got some catching up to do. I think I'm in the 150s in my level now, so <laughs> you got some catching <laughs> up to do. And I'm I'm only like at the Low end of the high players, right? There's like level 500s that are going to be running around. Just so you know. So plan for other players to kill me. <laughs> Actually, no. The Fallout 76 players and community are really, really good. Generally really? speaking. It is one of the least toxic online communities that I've ever experienced. Not to mention if... A high-level guy goes around and just starts ganking people. The other high-levels are going to put him in check because every time you kill someone, you get a bounty on your head. So it's, oh. it's really it's really made to balance that out. I'll be interested to uh, check that out then because that was a problem I ran into with some online games getting in under under a late start is... I was way underleveled compared to most of the average players, and that made me kind of easy pickings. I'll be honest. Whenever it's not worth my while to, you know, dispose of weapons or if I'm in the area, I will just go to the newbie spawning sites and just give my shit away because it's worthless to me in caps. Um, right. I, there's a cap. There's a cap limit, and I'm at the cap limit. So, I just go and unload. Back the truck up, boys. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I've got Chinese pistols for everybody. <laughs> uh, what was that? Uh, the 10 millimeter Chinese pistol was the one you always found, like a hundred of them sitting around. Oh, the, the 10 millimeter pistol is still there. In fact, that is your starting weapon in the tutorial. Okay. 
Yeah, but you'll just have to, you know, ask Ryan. If if you get into it and you get stuck, I'll be happy to to help you out. Thank right you. now, I'm going to ask Bert. We talked about this two weeks ago. Ask Bert. I, I should have bumper music. I don't have <laughs> bumper music for this. That's okay. Tell everybody what Ask Bert is. Well, I mean, it's pretty simple. You know, as a, as a pretty open nerd, people in my life know that I like board games, that I like video games, that I like uh, strange movies and foreign films and all that other stuff. I get asked a lot of questions from people who are not as knowledgeable about the hobby or are looking for a place to start, or they just kind of get to a point where they're stuck and they don't know which direction to go, it, it becomes Ask Bert. So I thought it would be interesting to put some of these out and kind of talk them through with you, see what we might recommend in this particular situation. I've got, say, three or four that I've heard in the last, say, six weeks or so, and I thought maybe we would uh, just kind of talk them through, see what we would recommend to people, did we get any uh, questions so far? I know you put out a thing where people could... I did. We got a bunch of suggestions. Oh, really? Most, mostly of things that I can do to my mother. But, oh, no. But no questions. Okay. Well, maybe next time we'll have some from the community, but I've got a few to kind of get us started, and I thought it would be interesting to see what you had to say and what kind of feedback you might give to these people. And then, of course, I can take that away and go back and talk to them about it. Well, we'll put it out there once again. If you have something that you want to ask Bert, write us at nerdcognitopodcast at gmail.com. Or hell, you can text us or call us on the Nerdcognito hotline. That's 323-694-4242. 323-694-4242. Text and or call rates may apply. But you can ask Bert. All right, Bert, what was the first thing that someone asked Bert? Now, this is one that I've gotten a few times, and uh, I don't know that you're going to have a lot of feedback on it because you already mentioned a few times that you don't play board games with your kids. Uh-uh, no way. Zip zero, zilch, nada, not allowed at my table. But, but, but I'm full of ideas. Okay, so basically the, uh, the thing that I get most often is people are trying to get into board games. They want to start doing things like family game night. And they're like, well, you know, there's a lot of new board games out there. There's a lot of interesting new types of board games out there. What board games would you recommend that I start with playing with my kids? I guess that really falls down to age range. You know, in a former life, I had a lot of experience with students from all right? age ranges from like, little, little kindergarten students all the way through uh, collegiate students. So um, it, it really does boil down to what specific age range are you looking at? Because I certainly have played some games with those students before. All right. So do we want to do maybe uh, one or two that we would recommend for younger kids and then one or two that we would recommend for older kids? Oh, I, it's 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 ask Bert. You just tell me. I give you my, your opinion. My opinion. It it's ask Bert. You just 
tell me and I'll give you my opinion and then you're the one with you're the man with the plan with the answers so. <laughs> so I mean considering that this is a question you get asked that I get asked from people with kids of all different ages why don't we do one or two that we would recommend for younger kids and one or two that we would recommend for older kids so say under 12 and then maybe teenagers okay well I have in the under 12 range, a couple of, I guess what you could say, classic sort of gateway games that pop into my mind. Castle Panic would be one. Okay. Sheriff of Nottingham would be two. Sheriff of Nottingham I could see being great for younger kids. It's uh. It's a bluffing game, but it's very easy to follow, and it's very. Uh, it's also it has a very cartoony appearance. It's very colorful. It's very, like, the characters that as drawn look animated, and I could see it being interesting for smaller kids. That one makes sense, right? Kids, Bert's gonna teach you how to lie. <laughs> um, and something fundamental, like a tiling, like a. A Carcassonne. Now, me, I always, uh, for people with smaller kids, I always recommend Dixit. I still have fun playing Dixit. It is, uh, I mean, it's a very simple game, and the fact that you're working mostly with cards with pictures, it doesn't require you to be able to really read. Um, You know, it's scored simply. Dixit kind of uh, jumped out at me for being a good one for younger kids as well. No, I think Dixit would be a good one. King Domino would be another one. Um, any of any of those genres, I, I would say, are good things that you could take back to those twelve-year-old-ish folks. Yeah, I think so too. I, I think we've got a pretty good group there as far as younger kids. Now, what would you recommend for older kids, say teenagers? Oh, as an introduction, huh? Right. You're starting family game night. You've got kids that are in their teens. What would you recommend as a as a good beginning game? Well, because they're teens, I would stick to co-ops at first. And I would pull out something like ghost stories where you're going to get brutally killed, but it forces teamwork. Mm, that's an interesting idea I would pull out something like a Mansions of Madness so you're not the full Eldritch Arkham Horror experience you still have the app guidance but you still are all working towards a common goal Mm. as far as a competitive Hmm. I don't know or maybe a clank for for a competitive all right, you've got some good suggestions there. Normally, you know, when I uh, when I get somebody ask me about teenagers, the you know the first thing I ask is, what are they into? Because there are so many like thematic games that are, you know, there are co ops that are science fiction based, that are fantasy based, that are horror based, that are like you. I recommend a co op normally for family game nights to start with. The last thing you want to do is on your first family game night be at war on the table. Well, you've never been to the household (laughs) with my parents when I was a teenager. No, no, I have not. No. Uh, You know, I I met you not long after that, but no, I never went to your 
parents' house for game night. I don't think you <laughs> you actually physically met my parents until we were well into adulthood, which is a good thing. Trust True. me. <laughs> Agreed. I didn't I didn't meet them until they were getting ready to move to Florida. Ah. Well, there you have it. And you got to hear that lovely voice again tonight. No, I, uh, I agree with you. If you had to pick a competitive, what would you pick for that age range? Hmm. For a competitive in that age range, I would probably look at something like, um, hmm, Lords of Vegas comes to mind. Hmm. I was thinking Castles of Mad King Ludwig. Castles would be good. Because then Castles... you're, it is competitive. You are still competing, but you're not absolutely anal raping your sister. <laughs> uh, you know, as far as, you know, considering that it's 13 plus, I would always suggest Terraforming Mars to anyone. Of course, Mr. Terraforming Mars. What, but, uh, you know, if your kids aren't, you know, science minded or aren't interested in sci-fi, they're going to be pretty bored with that, you know? Agreed. Another now the uh, co-op the co-ops that I normally recommend you know would be like Last Night on Earth or uh, even Dead of Winter for uh, older teens. Got it. No older teens like zombies. Good show. All right. All right. So I mean we've got a ton of suggestions out there, people. If you want to play with your kids, look into some of these games. What's another right. Ask Bert question that has come your way? All right. So people who want to transition. So they're, uh, you know. Whoa, hey, whoa, whoa. We're not talking politics here, Bert. No, no. Nothing like that. Nothing like that. When I talk about transition, I mean changing from either board games to tabletop role players or tabletop role players to board games. So they've already got history with one they know how to they've got let's say we've got a board game group that gets together like we do and they've only ever played board games and they want to get into tabletop role-playing games you know that hype is out there everybody's recording their games on youtube but people are you know afraid to know where to start you know how what would you recommend for somebody who wants to jump into role-playing who doesn't uh who doesn't have any experience with it. Honestly, and this is going to sound snooty, but that's okay. I've been called worse. They really have to go and recruit a good dungeon master for their first campaign. I I know the argument is there. Oh, no, you know, the group can stumble through it and, and, and chew it out. You You need someone that has a fundamental understanding of the rules that is a good storyteller on the fly and that can guide those players. So the DM, GM, whatever you want to call them, is critically important in that role for that group. Now, I'm not saying that they are married to that DM or GM, eventually I absolutely would hope that someone in that group is going to take the reins. But for the very, very first experience, I hear a lot from folks that are taking a second or third look at the hobby because 
when they were younger and when they tried it, they had a bad experience or they had just a confusing experience because there wasn't an experienced person to sort of play that mentor. So I think no matter what, you know, transitioning from D&D to board games is easy because you find someone that probably owns the game and is looking for people to play it that's willing to teach it. That avenue is easy. But finding a good DM where you can sit around the table and formulate these ideas and have that peace of mind that even if I fuck up my character, the campaign is still going forward. That's what I think would be the most important. And you do have a point there. I mean, the the thing about uh, D&D, when I learned to play D&D, we I we got the books. I read through them. You know, my friends read through them. We played uh, a few modules that were pre-built, and some. Then somebody had to step up and be a DM. We kind of like stumbled through in the dark together and tried to figure everything out. But and there was something to be said for that. It made things a challenge, like you were saying. You know, having somebody who knows the rules and knows how to facilitate a game like that can be a great benefit to those groups. Normally myself, I recommend something that's kind of rules light and one shots to just kind of break the ice and get them into it. Something like fiasco where there's a, you know, an established scenario, the rules are clearly laid out and it's more, um, it's more scene based where it's more discussion and thematic. You can mess up a scene and still kind of get to the end. You know what I mean? I I do. And see, I I go the other way. I, you don't have to go balls crazy and buy 30 D and D books, but I think going into the granddaddy of them all, you you know, you get a starter set. It's got pre-gen characters. It's got the scenarios already built it's got literally a read and progress sort of campaign module built in. It's still light-ish, but it will allow you to make that jump step different, uh, or it'll allow you to make that jump step, I guess, smoother. So I'm kind of a trial-by-fire type of guy. Okay. So, I mean, we're, we're of different minds of that, but both both are legitimate advice. You can either jump in with both feet or kind of, you know, wade in up to your ankles and sort of feel your way around. But either way, if you're looking to jump in, neither one of those is necessarily bad advice. It's just going to be kind of where you're comfortable with and how much risk you're willing to take. Right. And, you know, today people have the added advantage that we didn't have as children where if they're discovered playing, the reaction is, oh, that's cool, as opposed to where if we were discovered playing we were going to get our ass kicked if we weren't faster than the bullies. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Wait, do you guys like wear cloaks and hang out in the basement or, you know, like, is that a, is that a still a thing? You know, Michael still has friends that believes that that's what we do. <laughs> I'm just saying. No. Yes. No. Yes. I've met them. <laughs> in fact, I, I, I met them. And it was, so you're the dungeon master. Why am I using my mic voice? It wasn't Mike. It was Mike's friend. So who cares? It's the mic voice. So you're the dungeon master, huh? 
Yeah, you're in charge of Mikey here, huh? Yeah. You ever make him uh, take out his knife? <laughs> yeah, but Mike still has those friends. Yep. And by the way, if you're a group that is in a basement dressed in cloaks playing Dungeons & Dragons listening to this podcast, you do you. No disrespect. That's just not what we do. <laughs> no, that's fucking weird. Bert's so nice. <laughs> that's fucking weird. We had to fight against that for 20 years. Don't do that, people. Don't. Don't. Watch the Tom Hanks classic, Mazes and Monsters. You'll see. It's bad. <laughs> oh, that's right. Both of us grew up at the tail end of the satanic panic when it came to D&D. Oh, it was glorious, wasn't it? it made me it... want to just go out and buy another Aussie tape. <laughs> Anything else on your board for Ask Bert tonight? Yeah, actually, um, you know, what about people who want, you said it would be easy to go the other way. If you have a role-playing group that you're going to introduce to board games, everybody's got their favorites and things like that. But for a role-playing group that's used to interacting as a team, ad-libbing, things like that, what kind of board game would you recommend for them to start? Oh, this is, this is tougher because we have an established role-playing group and we don't have an outsider just like bringing a game. Right. I would encourage them as a group to go to their friendly local gaming store. You know, I am all about supporting local small business. As a group, go to the store. I'm sure they have a table that they will let you play. And as a group, walk through the aisles with or without the assistance of the geek at the store, find a thematic game that you all enjoy the theme to, quickly look it up on Board Game Geek, make sure it's at least a six and a half so that you don't get skunked, buy it, play it, fuck it up, fix how you fucked it up, and go from there. I think as a group, if you decide on a theme and a game, everyone will be invested in it. And putting some basic parameters out there, letting the community rating... You know, I usually don't give a shit what a Board Game Geek rating is. But using it as a barometer when you have no other metric, you'll have a good time. Because when it comes down to it, whether it's a good game or a bad game... Even when it comes up at our table, it's still just a bunch of friends having a good time together. The game can be whatever the game is. That is true. Now, normally, you know, if it's a role-playing group and they're trying to get into board games for the first time, I'm going to recommend something that's story-heavy. Something that has a lot of, like, thematic language or thematic uh, Oh, sure, but don't steer them to the Gloomhaven on their first game. No, 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 no. When I say thing, thematic like that, I want the I want uh, you know atmospheric stuff that comes along with it. Tales like, of the Arabian Nights or um... Tales of the Arabian Nights would be a good one. The other ones that I was thinking of were things like um, the uh, the Crossroads cards from uh, Dead of Winter come to mind because they kind of build a theme. They give you a scenario, and then you have to kind of decide. Um, what else? Uh, the, 
the atmospheric language that's in, and I know you hate this game, the atmospheric language and the um, storylines that are built into uh, mansions or not mansions. I uh, love betrayal. mansions. What are you talking betrayal. about? Betrayal. betrayal. I knew that's where you were going. Betrayal at House on the Hill. Like that's a, thematically, you know, for people who have been done role playing and things like that, thematically, it's kind of a great idea. It builds a story. It uh, it has sort of dark, atmospheric sort of elements built into it that kind of bring board game elements to life. But I know you hate that game just because of the randomness of it. I I, I really like the theme. I really like the the premise. I just don't like the execution. Right. No. Right. But 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 no. I I I would agree. I was even going to say a lighter dungeon crawler like some of the wizards uh dungeon crawler board games that they released that sort of run themselves uh they have a ravenloft one they have uh oh yeah the curse of a shardalon those ones those would be okay. all all good options to to transition into and if they're strong D players you can't you could recommend like lords of Waterdeep. Right, or, because uh, then it's a familiar theme, and that would right. be... I mean, Lords of Waterdeep is a fantastic introdu- introduction to a worker placement game. Absolutely, or um, Betrayal at Baldur's Gate is the other one that I kind of thought of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, those are some excellent questions that you had lined up for this week, Bert. You know, I thought they were pretty solid. They, they're, they're ones that come up pretty often. You know, a lot of people... Now that the hobby has kind of lost some of the stigma it had that we we were kids, you see a lot of people who have passing interest in it, but not really are sure how to make that that transition or take that first step. Right. No, absolutely. And the stigma definitely has been dropped, but it hasn't come without a price, Bert. Anyway, (laughs) uh, (laughs) that that's got about bring us to the end of the road here this week on nerd cognito lots of cool stuff man we had another week of stellar news a new board game that yeah. we actually got to play all the way through windward which was a knock it out of the park surprise for us we've got ask bert we talked about that fuck stick that doesn't know what he's talking about with dungeons and dragons <laughs> it doesn't get more complete than that Make sure that you go to the podcast provider of your choice and subscribe, like, review, give us the appropriate number of stars, which is always five, and make sure that you tell your friends about Nerd Cognito. We appreciate it. My name is Ryan David. I'm joined by Bert this week. We want to thank you for listening. I'm Ryan David. That's Bert. And we'll see you next week, folks. Be safe. Sounds like a plan. Have a good night, everybody. Nerd!